Every few years, Americans are inundated with campaign flyers and ads urging them to support one candidate over another or to vote no on an issue instead of yes. Those ads and mailers are often later used by researchers interested in studying political communication. But the act of registering to vote, or voting itself, produces its own kind of data. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Matt Dempsey. Dempsey is the data editor at the Houston Chronicle, as well as a veteran data journalist. A coalition of 20 newsrooms, including the Chronicle, recently worked together to purchase the Texas Voter Registration Database, as well as voting history going back to 2010. They've been using that data to write stories about voting in Texas in the run-up to the election. Thank you so much for being here today, Matt. Thanks for having me. My first question to you is simply... How did you get this many newsrooms to work together on this? And what kind of information does the data that you're looking at contain? Right. So how it happened is a little bit of a mystery to me, honestly, if I'm being 100% <laughs> honest. So essentially what happened was I wanted to get this data because the election was coming up. And I knew we could use this data to tell pretty interesting stories about the electorate and give some idea of where the electorate might be going based off of the number of registrants and where people are registering and things like that. So I had tried to get the data and I was told by the Secretary of State's office it was going to cost like just for the registration data alone, like 13, 1600, somewhere between 13 and 1600 dollars. And I knew that there's no way my editor would sign up for this. Yeah. Um, it would be not, that any newsroom would like most newsrooms, not any, but most newsrooms would be like, that's a lot of, for one data set. So I tried to haggle with the secretary of state's office, but I didn't get very far. And then, which is unusual. Usually you can get somewhere, but they were pretty steadfast on this is how much it costs. Yeah. So I told my editor and I'm like, I assume that we're not going to approve. You're not going to approve that. Right. And this is a knock on him. <laughs> goes, yeah, no, no, you're right. You're, you are correct. That is, you're not going to pay that. So I, and I didn't quite know what I was going to say next. I just wanted to like at first just confirm that it wasn't going to go anywhere. That I'm like, I guess this is dead. And in the moment I go, well, what if, we got someone to share the cost with us. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm not really, I think, what if I just call some newsrooms like around Houston and Texas and see if anybody wants to share in the cost of getting this data. And again, no offense to my editor, who's kind of like, mm, yeah, sure, go for it. <laughs> like it was kind of like, yeah, go for it. I, I, I doubt that this will work, but I can't see a problem in trying, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what happened from there is, I started making calls. I started with the Texas Tribune and asked them because they're a, they're a big Texas wide organization that does a lot of collaborations with newsrooms. So I figured they would be the easiest sell yeah. something like this. And they would obviously want the whole Texas data set that would be useful. Um, and once I got them to say essentially, yeah, this sounds pretty, we're interested at the minimum, right? So from there, um, actually my wife and I, we were driving to San Antonio for a work trip for her and I'm like, well, it's a two, three hour drive. Let's start making calls. So my wife, would look oh, up the wow. news. my wife, I'm driving. My wife would look up the phone number for TV station news directors in Houston. That's where we started with Houston calls. And I call up the TV stations and I would make a very short pitch. The pitch was, hey, um, I have a deal for you. 
get, <laughs> let's get at the, let's get thirteen hundred dollars or sixteen hundred dollars worth of data for less than two hundred dollars. And if we just get enough of people involved, that's a pretty good deal, right? That's a thousand dollars plus of data for less than two hundred bucks. I mean, you don't get that kind of deal on Black Friday, right? <laughs> and then people basically, I'm surprised. I was assuming most people would just say no, and most of this almost. The immediate response was like, well, yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, shoot wow. me an email. I'm like, well, I'm driving, um, so can you shoot me an email and I'll respond? And <laughs> so by the time we made it to San Antonio, we had responses, or at least interest, from almost every Houston media outlet. That's the local NPR station, um, all the major networks, uh, local TV, uh, local affiliates, and obviously the Chronicle. And then we had uh, we were in San Antonio, so we we're parking at the hotel. I I took one of the little pay scooters and drove over to our partner paper in San Antonio and Mark met with uh, the EIC there, Mark, and said, "Hey, who I know because he used to work at the Chronicle for a little bit," and said, "Hey, this is what we're going to do. Are you cool with this?" He's like, "Yeah, this is, sounds sounds fantastic." So got him signed up, and then uh, the next week we started calling. I started calling all the San Antonio paper or San Antonio TV stations, and then Austin and Dallas and. Um, then I started working my way down from there to El Paso and Corpus Christi and then started hitting the Rio Grande Valley area like Laredo and things like that. So, um, so we, right? I was going to say, so, so why, why did people care? What's the big deal about this database? Right. So voter registration data has a lot of information. It has um, the date of birth, name, address, mailing address, date of birth. The date of the registration it has a field called hispanic surname which um i don't use actually it's supposed to help people determine hispanic ethnicity because texas does not ask race or ethnicity on voter registration data so i, I don't use it because i think hispanic surname um is really statistically kind of focus i don't think it really works yeah but it's something we get um but either way there's a lot of information there and it's data on millions of people in the state of texas um it's a really really large data set when you get the whole thing unzipped all the data we got is like more than 40 gigabytes of data oh wow um it's pretty enormous usually i tell public public agencies that tell me the data set is really big i kind of scoff at it i'm like ah, yeah i'm fine i can handle a big data set <laughs> this one actually is really really big um and does take a little bit of managing to uh, process it correctly and things like that did you did you did you know going into this what you were looking for i mean what kind of data were you looking for and what kind of stories were you thinking about all as you as you put this coalition together right so the pitch that i made um was in terms of stories that i could tell to the coalition partners was obviously election stories new registrants who's registering what is the demographics of those who are registering in terms of age so you, are, are we getting more young people registering mm -hmm. that was a big thing that i wanted to look into i think a lot of us want to look into that um how does this compare how many, um, what percentage of currently registered voters registered in 2018 or like new registrants, things like that. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to do that I pitched particularly to TV stations, which do a lot of breaking news, mm -hmm. is that a voter registration database is a really good people finder and a backgrounder. Mm. Because it has um, all this personal information, legitimately personal information about lots and lots of people. If you're working on a breaking news story and you want to verify information or track someone down, you can get the you can get mailing address and address and how old they are. It's really good to com confirm a, uh, who people are and track things down. It's a good primary data set in that regard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's like. Even if you're not interested in the election stuff, at least get it for this, right? Like, yeah. for, I, like I, I would, I wouldn't lie or anything like that, but I would definitely 
doing my best. Um, how? Uh, what's the name of the guy from Henry Hill, the music man? Oh, I was, yeah, you know, yeah. like right here in River City. Let's get that data. <laughs> um, so that was the goal, essentially, is that if we could get as many, you know, we could tell a lot of really interesting election stories, but it has use outside of that. And we haven't had this data in years and years and years, like the whole breadth of the data. Yeah. So getting this is a good baseline for, not, I will use it for people finding purposes, I'm sure, too. So are more young people registering? Did you find? Uh, we're working on that. Sure, uh, that's... <laughs> so I've only actually had all the data loaded up into um, my SQL instance since like late last week um, because of other assignments that I had to finish right. up before I could spend all my time on elections for the next, you know, however, you know, the March till election and afterwards. But um, so the stories we've done so far, um, so we are a partner paper with ProPublica's Election Land Project. Yeah. Right, right. So we get, um, and we're, we are a very enthusiastic partner. Um, I'm coordinating all of that um, uh, collaboration um, for the Chronicle. One of the first tips we got when Election Land went live for 2018 was about a situation that happened in Waller County. Prairie View A&M, which is a historically black college, mm-hmm. um, had an issue with voter registration. They were being told that you know the instructions they had given to people who were registering people to vote before for college students on campus was incorrect. And that was how they were registering people all year. And actually it's since 2016. Oh, wow. So now they wanted all those college students to fill out a separate like confirmation of residence or change of residence form before they could vote on election day or in early voting. That upset very many people. There's a lot of misinformation around this tip, but we sussed it out. And one of the things that we did was we looked into the data to find out how many people had been registered under this incorrect information, like this bad training that they had provided to registrars. So we could show that it was like a thousand people, uh, which is like there's about eight thousand kids at Prairie View A and M, and so that's like a thousand. That's a pretty decent chunk of the student population was yeah. registered in, to the wrong address, and that would have been a lot of people on election day having to fill out an extra form. Um, a whole bunch of things happened outside of that because of this. But in the end, it sounds like the county's just going to, the state and the county are going to allow them to just vote without the change of residence. Okay. Mm-hmm. Matt, uh, since you since you raised uh, election land, could you explain what that mm-hmm. is for people who are unfamiliar? Absolutely. So election land is a collaboration that is headquartered by ProPublica. They, uh, newsrooms who are participating in this um, get tips from from ProPublica, as they get tips, they have a system to receive information from like lawyers or they, they monitor Facebook and some other places to see for complaints about voter integrity issues, ability to vote, you know, voter yeah. suppression, any anything making it difficult for problems with voting. So we were a big participant in 2016 uh, and we got a bunch of really interesting stories out of that. They are making a big effort to be more involved before voting starts and during early voting this year. And we've already gotten three or four tips in the first week um, in Texas, which has been pretty great. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington with Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Films' Richard Campbell. Today, we're talking about voting data with Matt Dempsey. So, Matt, you talked about um, this issue of uh, at Prairie A&M uh, and the sort of uh, difficulties for these students, possibly, that you've pulled out of this data. How do you go into a data set this large? and find right. these kinds of stories. So 
the way I approach my job is um, honestly not all that different from a normal reporter report, uh, approaches a source, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think of the questions I want to ask of the data, and I know the data well enough to be able to ask the question effectively. So for this one, I knew exactly what the address I needed to look up was. Um, I have it in, I just run a SQL query saying, hey, show me all the first, let's, it's a really large data set. So first let's pull out just the Waller County data. Yeah. I don't need everybody else. And then I just query the Waller County data from there and said, okay, show me 100, 700 University Drive. You know, those two addresses were the ones in question. So I could pull all of that out and I could limit it to just those who had an effective registration date of 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, that happened within 2018. So I had to create a separate um, field to show the year because it has the whole date of registration. Effective date of registration is all just the whole date. Um, and I just wanted to limit it to just 2018 registrations. Um, but that's essentially what I did. For other things like that, I mean, we had a different tip from election land that happened about um, the number of registrants that's, uh, registrations that spiked around the deadline. Now, I don't quite have deadline data yet. I have, uh, like, up through the voter registration deadline, I mean. Yeah. So I'm working with the Secretary of State site to fill in that gap right now. But I could show, like, by month, how in specific, like, some of the bigger counties in Texas, how many registrants we are getting by month, and then compare that to what the county was telling us without being able to look at the data to show that, like, in September, Travis County had, um, like, 15,000 voter registrations, and they're telling us on the last day of registration um, they had 36,000 registrants, so oh, they had yeah. more than double the number of registrants they had for the entire month of September in one day. Yeah. Um, wow. That's something that that's an easy thing to explain and get look at in the data, uh, just by counting things up that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like you have to have some some very strong database skills to be to be playing with this. Well, the big part, honestly, querying the data is not so bad. Okay. That's the easy part. Um, and that's something I tell my students when I adjunct or teach uh, data journalism. The, the analysis part is usually the fun slash easy part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, hard, the hard part is getting everything ready to go yep. to be analyzed. Oh, that's true. Yeah, preparing the data. For so, that, yeah. Right. So the way the state provides this data is both helpful and kind of annoying. It's um, I get a zip file that has 254 fixed width um text files one for each county in the state of texas oh god uh, and all of that together so some newsrooms i think are going to probably just upload their counties in their metro okay. first and just deal with that but i you know we have an austin bureau we have a sister paper in san antonio you know i just i loaded up the whole darn thing into um my sql instance both on my home computer and my work computer because my home computer is a little bit more beastly okay. um, and it processes things a little faster uh, but it still took a while because honestly, I'm not usually dealing with 254 text files that, and I'm certainly not dealing with that many fixed width files. Um, so I had to do a little research to make sure I was importing it the most efficient way possible. Oh, good. You mentioned uh, you mentioned teaching. So Rosemary and I mm -hmm. teach journalism, and my question is. How do you get students interested in data? A lot of journalism students yeah, are scared. This is a this is a this is a, a an obstacle for them. So what do you right. what do you do when you're in a classroom and you've got a majority of the students, I suspect, um, that find this daunting? So I've been teaching data journalism. I haven't taught in a little bit since I've been in Houston. I've done like an online class for Arizona State once, um, but for the but I really haven't teached consistently since. I was back in Phoenix and working as an adjunct at ASU. Okay. But and teaching mostly grad students and honor students. Mm -hmm. But I would say this that I think a lot of people assume still in 2018 that data means math. 
and math means no i math is just <laughs> you know where monsters are and uh like it's this is a question i can ask any group of journalists no matter what their age if they're professionals and they're in their 60s or if they're brand new if they're journalism students and haven't worked a day at a newspaper in their life or a tv station how many of you are hate math and i guarantee you'll get at least 90 percent of the room any room will raise their hand um most rooms i should say data journalists a little bit less so but most people will raise their hand math is scary math is bad that's why i got into journalism i like words so what i like to do is say that one this isn't a math class we're not doing a ton of math the math is usually pretty simple most data journalism math is not complicated and i myself am not great at math i, I tell people all the time that people think that i'm a wizard at math i'm like i'm not good at math i just know how to get, tell my computer to do my math for me um <laughs> So that's what, what I try to explain to my students is that data is no different. Data is just like people. Uh, it can, it, it's just like a source. You can ask your data questions. Your data can mislead you just like sort of people can mislead you. It can be wrong just like people can be wrong. Um, mm. You have to do all the same things you do for, to prepare for an interview. You have to do the same things when you're preparing to work with data a data set you have to know do your research ahead of time you know you don't, it's not doesn't do you well to go into an interview being unprepared it doesn't do you well to go in front of a data set and just expect it to produce answers that's not how any of this works right mm -hmm. so if you come into data journalism with the same mindset you come into your norm what you quote unquote normal journalism you know you'll do well um and it'll be it's a way to get questions and answers that you might not have been able to get out of a human source. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, the short version, like how I got into this <laughs> is um, I'm distrustful of people. When I was a journalism student, I had a real hard time. Like I'd interview people and then like for non, like non-consequential stories. And I'd be like, well, how do I know they're not lying to me? I'm very <laughs> distrustful and paranoid. It's kind of weird. <laughs> and when I found out about data journalism, when I was working as a research researcher at um, IRE at Mizzou, investigative reporters and editors, um, that's when I discovered what data journalism was and was like, oh, I can, I see this. This is, this means I don't have to rely on a person to tell me what the, what the information is. I can use documents and data to, as a primary, primary source. And then I can ask them to respond to information I already have instead of asking them to tell me the things I don't know. Yeah. Very good. So I, I want to flip the question. So uh, mm -hmm. how do you get statisticians interested in data journalism? <laughs> Because, because there, there are many statisticians that are interested in trying to gain insight from data. That's actually the world in which we live, mm -hmm. and many of our students are interested in that. And, and, and some of us you know, still, still can use words. So, <laughs> right. so, so how, how might we attract some from the stat side into the data journalism world? Right. So um, my mentor, Steve Doig, who um, until fairly recently was the night chair of journalism at Arizona State, he, um, he used to tell me that one of the great things about being, journal uh, being a journalist versus being an academic or being a statistician is that our barrier to publication is so much lower. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, for example, there's lots of times where I'll be working on something and I'll be talking to an academic and they're like, well, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if that is exactly how I would put, it. you know, I don't know if that is statistically significant. I'm like, okay, that's fine. It doesn't have to be. I just need to show, show that there's a relationship there and we don't know the answer. And we can report around it and use anecdotes to kind of fill in the gap where the data ends and like real life begins. 
I find that um, in that regard, data journalism has a little bit more utility and flexibility than statisticians or, or statistics work says. Statistics, you are beholden to you know your academic standards and in a good way, right? That's a good thing. But it also means that when you where a paper or a, a stats paper might stop at, well, we don't know the answer. We the data seems to imply this, but there's no you know we have confounding variables. We have you know it's unclear if this we would have to replicate this. We'd have to do some other research and blah blah blah. As a journalist, I don't have to wait for any of that. I can just talk to other people and fill in and say this implies this. That this could be this, and I can use my reporting skills to kind of fill in the gaps and just say this is what it looks like is happening. It'd be very surprising if it doesn't. I'm not beholden to those other standards. Um, you can publish a lot faster. Gosh, this pace is so much faster than academia, and that's really nice. Um, also, impact. Um, that's probably my favorite part about journalism. You have a genuine impact on the world on a day-to-day -day basis. People read your work, um, even maybe less than I would like, but they still mm -hmm. do. Um, I know that, the, for example, that Waller County story, um, Within a week of us publishing that first story, the secret, the state, the county, everybody had all decided that here's the better way to handle it. That's wow. impact. If a stats person does that story one, it's not going to run before the election. Does a paper on that one, it's not going to run before the election. And two, it was, because of that, it won't have an impact, and mm -hmm. you, it'll it stays in the ivory tower of academia, not as an insult to academia at all, but this is more practical, real world. So working at that speed where mistakes, you can make mistakes, right? So what are the pitfalls? Oh, what what are the pitfalls? What do you see in other journalists that are problems? And what what are pitfalls for you? What are you, what are you careful about? Well, I'll be honest. I'll, I'll give you a really good example just for the voter registration data. Not this particular data set, but an earlier version, a smaller subset. I was working too fast. This has happened fairly recently. I was working too fast. I was doing too many different things at once because um, I'm usually doing lots of different things at once. And I was working with a reporter in our Austin Bureau about um, new registrants versus, you know, and younger registrants. And she had some 2014, a 2014 slice of data versus 2018 slice of data. And um, I was looking at the ages so we could get, um, you know, and they just give it DOB, not a date of birth, not the age. So we have to calculate the age. You want to guess what the mistake I made when I wasn't paying attention? Oh, when you were the mistake I made was 2014. I used the 2018. I used. Oh. I was calculating the age for the 2014 registrant ah. as if it was 2018, not 2014. Oh. So oh. Older in 2014 than they were in 2014. Yes. But Alejandra Matos, who is our, one of our Austin reporters, the one I was working with, she's data fluent. She knows this stuff. She knows how to write queries and things like that. And she caught the mistake. She's like, wait a second. How are there no 18-year-old registrants in 2014? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like, yeah, it shows there's no 18. I'm like, no. And I look at it like, <laughs> oh, gosh, good catch, Alejandro. I was not paying attention to that. I was moving too fast. I was not paying, I yeah. didn't slow down and make sure I was doing all my integrity checks, right? Mm -hmm. So um, usually that we did, we caught this way before publication. And that's usually where most mistakes get caught um, is you're doing your checks. You have editors who are supposed to ask your numbers. Now, that mm -hmm. being the case, data journalists frequently operate, um, I would say, without a net. Most of our editors don't have, the people mm -hmm. who are editing our work don't have data experience, That's aren't right. data journalists themselves almost all the time. So imagine if you're a, stat, or you're a statistician or you're an academic and the person you're reporting to doesn't know what you're doing, doesn't have an understanding mm -hmm. necessarily of the details of the work. So they have no idea what questions to ask necessarily that would help catch those things. Mm -hmm. So you have to be your own best back check. 
So one of the things you can do is like build into your workflow a series of integrity checks to make sure have I done, you know, what are the common mistakes we make around age? What are the common mistakes we make around certain data sets? Um, that's usually the best way to go about it. And then double check your work. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. Check it three or four times. Anytime we do publication, we start the analysis. I start all the analysis all the way over again from scratch. If I can do it in a different soft piece of software, I'll do it. Like if I did the work in Access or MySQL, I'll do it in Excel if I can, if the file small enough. If I did it in Excel or I might do it in R or like, you know, like do it in a different format, the same calculations. And if I get the same result, all right, now we're, now we're doing good. Essentially think about it as rapid replication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the idea that, that you're, you're building in your analysis integrity checks. And I think that's something that we would mm-hmm. certainly encourage in all of our, our analysis classes mm-hmm. as well. I mean, you're, you're building in an, um, some, some assurance that, that you're, you have more greater likelihood of reproducibility of what you're doing because mm-hmm. you won't have made those silly mistakes earlier or that will come back and, and haunt you. Do you ever make the, the, the data from analyses you've done open to the public so that others could, could replicate your work or re- redo an analysis? Right. Um, so we've been moving to that more often. I think journalists, journalism in general has been moving towards that more um, than we would have done 13 years ago when I got started. Um, we here at the Chronicle are using the data.world platform a lot more um, and GitHub. So we've been posting a lot more of our data there. We just did, um, it would have been three, four months ago, uh, we did a project related to the National Flood Insurance Program. Now, my former colleague, Mark Collette, um, who has recently uh, left journalism to be a stay-at-home dad, he's one of my best friends, he's a fantastic mm-hmm. reporter who has some data skills. He doesn't do data primarily. But he got all of this um, really fantastic and first-of-its-kind FEMA, uh, data from FEMA about the National Flood Insurance Program about severe repetitive loss. And it was data that, like, individual addresses for severe repetitive loss. So we could show which properties mm-hmm. had applied to FEMA for, not, or like, made a claim under the NFIP. And we could show which areas, and it's nationwide data. And we could show specifically which cities, towns, or, or cities, counties, states had the most repetitive loss claims, how much those claims were worth, all sorts of really great, fantastic stuff. Um, he did a whole lot of data cleaning to get that data into shape to do the analysis. And we shared the cleaned version of that data set on GitHub and data.world so that other papers, other media outlets, not just papers, other mm-hmm. media outlets could do the same kind of stories in their area. We've already known that there's papers in uh, West Virginia that use that data. Oh, wow. There's, a, there's an institute, there's a, I think a Louisiana paper did something with it. And I think a Louis, uh, Illinois paper did something with it. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody in Illinois, I think, did something with it. Oh, that's cool. So, and that data is going to be great for a while. I, if I would, for example, if I was North Carolina, if I was in North Carolina, yeah. I would be using this data right now. Mm-hmm. Who has, which, which places have severe repetitive loss or which areas? We don't have specific addresses, but which towns have had the most severe repetitive loss in the areas that got hit by, mm-hmm. um, was the name of the hurricane already? Florence? I think it was Florence. And Michael was the one that yeah. just hit Florida. Right. Florida yeah. should be looking at this data because it's usable and you don't have to go through the process of, it took us months to get yeah. this data yeah. um, post-Hurricane Harvey. Um, so it's incredibly useful, but we've been doing that more of that. We're trying really hard. We have a lot of data in-house that we haven't shared that we're, it takes a little bit of time uh, to get it make sure it's all cleaned up and updated and um, you, that we're not like spreading mistakes, like make sure that the data is ready to be shared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and also writing out what it is and how to work with it. You know, all of that is essentially institutional knowledge that we should already have that we don't necessarily have. Yeah. So we've been working on that as well. Um, so not it's not just good for the public, it's good for us internally. It makes sure that we know what we have and it shows the public uh, to a degree to what we can actually do. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was a really interesting conversation. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Sorry, I'm a little bit, uh, I talk a lot. Sorry. Yo, no, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.